Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of 2nd Lieutenant Raymond Zussman. Zussman was serving with the 756th Tank Battalion during the Second World War. And today we're going to talk about actions on September 12th, 1944 in a small town in eastern France. So before we dive into Zussman's story, I think it's worth talking about these separate tank battalions because they're kind of unique. They really stood up a little bit before the Second World War, and they're really only a part of our military history for 10 or 15 years. Now, if we look back to when tanks kind of came about on uh, on the battlefield, that was during the First World War. Now, at a real high level, you had Troops on each side of, of no man's land in the First World War dug in their trenches, reinforced positions, barbed wire, machine guns, mines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And each side would send these waves of attackers, usually on foot, infantrymen on foot, and try to break through the opponent's line. And if you could achieve a breakthrough, the follow-up to that would be something called exploitation, So think of an army attacking on a wide front, a mile or more across, and maybe one, two, three areas, they're able to overwhelm the defenders and they they get through the barbed wire. Maybe they overrun a machine gun position and bam, now they're facing a less defended area. Maybe it's a secondary trench, a communications trench. Maybe it's a field hospital. Maybe it's all of a sudden access relatively nearby to a headquarters, right? The main defense is in that front line. So if you can break through and continue your attack, you're going to hit softer targets. Now, the way to do that is as soon as that gap is identified, you exploit it by sending your troops through as quick as possible by whatever means possible. Historically, that was something done often with horse cavalry, right? Because they're fast. They can get to that gap. They can, they can hear about that gap in the line, maybe find that gap in the line and bam, they're through wreaking havoc behind your front. An issue in the First World War is the staggering amount of casualties that would be inflicted as troops moved across no man's land meant that oftentimes when they did punch a hole in the line, they didn't have anywhere near the manpower to actually exploit it. So over and over again, you'd see potentially gaps created. And then before the attacking force could do anything about it, the defenders would be able to seal that gap and we're back to a stalemate. Now, again, in a perfect world, if you exploit that gap and start pushing through, what generally happens is the entire line has to fall back and reestablish a new defensive perimeter. That is how you could start to move these trenches during the First World War. But of course, as we know now, we had trouble with that year after year. Well, we had trouble with that the entire war. An idea to try to break that stalemate was the invention of these tanks or land ships is maybe a better way to say it. These monstrous machines, I mean, they were the size of school buses. Some of them had crews of 12 soldiers, 12 soldiers in one of these tanks. They're not at all what we think of when we say tanks today. What comes to mind today for a tank that is not, not what these things look like. Giant hunks of metal moving across the battlefield. And the advantage the tanks had was that they could get to the enemy's defenses intact, right? So they were still susceptible to artillery strikes and mines and even things like ditches that infantry could move through. But at least they could get to the enemy line and be able to accomplish their mission and maybe 
punching a hole through the barbed wire, maybe rolling over the barbed wire and creating a path for the infantry. What that meant then is that infantry could be hiding behind that tank or maybe waiting for that gap to be created and then step out from behind cover and exploit it. Now, in the First World War, infantry were the exploitation force. Remember, we were talking about that traditionally being kind of a cavalry role because the horses are faster. Well, the First World War horses didn't last very long in no man's land up against modern weaponry and machine guns. And these tanks, these First World War tanks were slow, like three, four, five miles an hour slow. So if you're trying to exploit a gap in the enemy line, using a three mile an hour tank to do that isn't going to get you very far. But the infantry can move a lot faster than that and get down in the trenches and clear out the bunkers and remove the machine gun nests, right? So in the First World War, you would see these tanks punching holes really towards the end of the conflict. They, they didn't play much of a role for the, I think it was 1916, the first time they were introduced. And we really took a while, everybody took a while to figure out how we're going to best utilize this new equipment. Nonetheless, that was kind of the purpose in the First World War. Punch a hole in the enemy lines, the infantry would come through and exploit. Now, there was a lot of innovation and a lot of change between the First World War and the Second World War, the interwar years, as we call them. And by the time the Second World War comes around, you're going to see tanks that look like tanks today. This is really modern tank warfare. And rather than being these real slow behemoths um, that are just punching a hole in the enemy lines, the tanks of World War II are fast. 20, 25, at times upwards of 30 miles an hour moving across the battlefield and lethal. And they can take a punch. So all of a sudden what this means by the start of the Second World War for just about all major belligerents involved is these tanks can not only punch a hole in the enemy line, they can also be the exploitation force. And now we're kind of getting into the blitzkrieg style of warfare that Germany so famously employed early in the conflict where they just toppled countries in incredible time, right? Part of that was the idea of using these tanks to punch a hole through the enemy line. And then before they even know what happened, you've got tanks, armored columns, 5, 10, 20 miles behind their front lines, attacking their supply points, taking over their headquarters, capturing hospitals. I mean, it was devastating. And this is throughout military history, right? We always take a little while to adapt to new technology and new tactics. But nonetheless, by the, by the start of the Second World War, you're really starting to see kind of modern tank warfare as, as you know, maybe the first iteration of modern tank warfare. The United States was not immune to this. We watched this happening. And before the Second World War started to create our own armored divisions. So we have infantry divisions. And to keep it real simple, we're going to say we have infantry divisions and then we have armored divisions. There's a lot more to it. But when we're talking about the fighting force and the front lines, we'll, be, uh, we'll, we'll stay real high level with those two for the sake of this story. Now, there are certain missions specifically designed for infantry. And there are certain missions that are better suited for an armor unit. But these tanks... They're awesome, right? That's incredible firepower. It's incredible speed. Think about having one of those on your side moving in to take a village. And military planners, U.S. military planners saw this as an interesting problem to solve, right? So if you've got your armored divisions, we'll say the first armored division over here rolling on their objective, and then you've got these infantry divisions like the third infantry division also working their mission set. What happens when that infantry unit says, hey, we could use a tank or two for whatever reason? Well, 
you'd say, let's pull a couple tanks from the armored division and, and supplement them and then we'll move on. But, but we thought that request, those requests from the infantry units to have armored support would continue to amp up. It wouldn't be a one-time thing. We're going to need it over and over again. And if you start pulling from this armored division, how long before they're not capable of accomplishing the mission set that they've been given, right? What if you have to pull a battalion once a month? What if you have to pull a company every other day? So the the best of both worlds solution that U.S. military planners came up with was this idea of separate tank battalions. A separate tank battalion was just that. It was an armored battalion. It had traditionally three medium tank companies. Those were um, three medium tank companies. The Sherman tank was was primarily what was used. One light tank company and then a, a maintenance company, right? And the idea with these separate tank separate tank battalions is that they didn't report to the armored divisions. They didn't report to the infantry divisions. They were an on-call armored force to be used by the infantry divisions as needed. So not a permanent attachment, but for specific operations, for specific fights, for campaigns, whatever might be needed, you could look to this separate tank battalion. A division might request an entire battalion support, and boom. Now you're working hand-in-hand with armored units to support your infantry. Now, as you can expect, the longer that these relationships held in place, the better the two groups would work together, right? So that wasn't often the case in the Second World War. Often these tank battalions and the companies within them would be attached for shorter periods of time. I think there was only one instance of a tank battalion being attached to one unit for the duration of the war. But look, it's a smart concept. It makes a lot of sense. Even looking back now, there's so many things that happen in warfare and that happen throughout military history. And you can look back after the fact and really nitpick it and come up with all the reasons why that wasn't the right answer. But if we look at this, the idea of these separate tank battalions with the information they had at the time, and remember this idea of combined arms fighting, utilizing infantry and armor, and maybe even aviation on the same battlefield, it's in, an in, it's, in its infancy, right? We're just getting into that. So they're learning it in a combat environment. But it makes sense to have a separate battalion. You know, you can't just take a tank and place it with an infantry company and call it a day. Everybody wanted this type of firepower, but an infantry company is completely different than an armor company in a lot of ways. So if you take one tank, two tanks, three tanks, whatever it is, place it with an infantry company and say, now you have a tank. Well, now when they're planning their missions, they have to take into consideration, will that bridge support a tank? We were just going to walk over it, so it didn't matter. What about this terrain? Is it too steep for a tank? Hey, how about ammunition resupply? We're an infantry company. We don't carry around tank rounds. Now you've got to build in another supply channel. What about the lubrication for the the main gun and for the rest of the equipment? What happens if it breaks down? We don't have spare parts. We're an infantry company. You know, we don't have extra treads, extra tank treads or or replacement anything for a tank should it break down let alone the mechanics to do that. We're, we're an infantry company. So these separate tank battalions had these maintenance companies included, and they would in turn pull these units back, these tank companies, platoons, sections back to get all their work done. And then once they were ready and, and resupplied and rebuilt and, and ready to roll, they could send them out to support. So that burden, that added burden of maintenance and support didn't fall on the infantry company. So it's a pretty smart idea that, that worked well throughout the Second World War. Now, fast forward to September of 1944 in eastern France. 
the 756 tank battalions can be called upon to support the 3rd Infantry Division. Now, at this point in the war, the major landings in continental Europe happened on June 6, 1944, Operation Overlord D-Day. And you're going to have the bulk of the American forces pushing in from Normandy west to east across France. But in August, in southern France, you're going to have Operation Dragoon. And this is going to be a second wave of amphibious landings, essentially creating another front in France for the Nazis to have to deal with as they're fighting pretty much a defensive... I mean, they're going to be moving back throughout France just about from June 6th. Well, the Battle of Normandy kind of held us up for a little while. But but really after June 6th, Germany is moving back and the Allies are moving forward. And by... By kicking off Operation Dragoon in the south in August, um, we're going to open up this second front. Now, as we move further north into a small village in eastern France, only about 50 miles from the German border, there's going to be a call for tank support. There's an infantry unit getting ready to move into a village, and the call goes out, we could use some armored support. Second Lieutenant Raymond Zussman gets that call. Now, he's a second lieutenant. But at this point, by September of 1944, he's a pretty seasoned combat veteran. He's already fought in North Africa and Italy before landing in southern France during Operation Dragoon and fighting his way up to this portion of of eastern France. So second lieutenant, but he's got some experience under his belt. Zussman is going to be leading leading two tanks. He's going to have his tank, the command tank, if you will, and then another tank along with this infantry unit. And it makes sense that these infantry units would need this type of support throughout, right? As Germany is moving back across France, we're not going to see generally these large armored units moving out in the open, conducting you know, tank warfare like we saw at the very beginning of the conflict, or you would see on the Eastern Front even at this point. Well, a little before this point. But instead, as Germany is kind of retreating back across France, you'd see them disperse their artillery pieces or their tanks to these different villages and strong points throughout. And now when the American infantry or allied infantry is moving through to clear these areas, they're not just running into German infantry, they're running into German infantry that's dug in, in defensive positions. They've built roadblocks. They have fortified bunkers sometimes, if able, especially that you know they know this is coming. They have time generally to create some sort of defensive barrier. And then there's tanks scattered throughout these villages. There, there might not be 20 at a time. There might not even be five. There could be one at times parked in certain areas. It wasn't uncommon for the Germans even to take a tank that was disabled and couldn't drive or move because of lack of fuel, lack of parts, whatever it might be. But hey, look, you park it behind a barn with a, a field of fire over the incoming roads. It's pretty effective. You can still use the main gun. You can still use the machine guns. So Allied infantry, as they're moving through to take these villages, because that, like we were talking about earlier, is an infantry job to take and hold territory, right? Running tanks through the middle of a village or the middle of a town doesn't mean that it's secure when there's German infantry and strong points all throughout. We need boots on the ground to take that territory, especially because there's going to be civilians in there, right? So you don't just want to completely devastate the entire town, if at all possible, kind of clear your way through, move the German soldiers out, and bam, you're one step closer to to the end of the war, ideally. So in September, September 12th, 1944, Zussman and his, his unit gets the call. He gets sent out with one other tank to, uh, to attack this village with the infantry and clear it of German soldiers. Now, 
as they're moving up on the objective, there's an issue with his tank. It, it, it's not destroyed, but maybe incapacitated is a way to say it. So it's not functioning anymore. It's immobile. But just like we were talking about with the German tank still being able to operate, just because his tank can't roll forward doesn't mean he can't fire. doesn't mean the communications don't work. It's, it's not destroyed. It's just not going to be as effective as the other tank in their formation. So Zussman jumps down out of his tank and takes off forward to recon the area ahead. Now, why didn't he leave that to one of the infantry guys on the ground that he's working with? And, and you know, the way that I'm thinking about this today, this, can we get some support from somebody is, is that of air support for modern operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. You don't know if you're going to need it, but it sure would be nice if you have it there. And when you're doing it, who's going to know better how to attack targets or what to look for than an aviator or somebody trained with those folks? You know, in the Army, we might have an Air Force JTAC tied in with us because he knows the capability of that aircraft more so than your random random infantry or even artillery soldier on the ground. If you can get somebody who's real tied in with that weapon system, that's going to make it all the better. That is Second Lieutenant Raymond Zussman. So rather than sending infantrymen forward to come back and tell them what they see, he goes and does it himself. He moves forward a couple times and does what we call, or what, what I'm going to call here, designating targets. He goes forward, identifies certain areas that his tanks need to knock out, runs back, communicates that to his tanks. And it's important that Zussman is doing this because he's able to articulate what they need to hit and how and where. And, and think about it. If it's, if it's a non-tanker, is doing that. They might say, well, it's the second building on your right, the second floor. They might not be able to tell the tank, hey, you're not going to be able to engage that from here. And based off of how your, you know, the elevation of your main gun, you're going to have to move around this side. And that's, that's what Zussman can do. That's why he's more efficient here, more effective in his capacity. So he runs forward a couple few, couple times, identifying targets for his tanks to start hammering. He also starts to return with German prisoners, all right? Just right at the beginning of the fight. So identifying, designating targets for his tanks, bringing back German prisoners, and then the attack continues. They continue to move further into the village, and at close range, he's getting fired upon. He's still on foot, right? So one of the tanks is maneuvering. He's on foot by that tank, helping to call out targets as they go. Close range enemy fire. The tanks fire into one of these buildings at point blank, quickly kill, I think there's three German soldiers, and he captures eight. He's on a roll. He stays on the ground, continuing out ahead of the tanks, which again, there's another reason this is important. He can identify issues for the tanks out ahead. If there's a minefield, if there's a roadblock, if there is enemy armor hidden behind a building, he's going to be able to see that before his tank gets right in the field of fire. So he can go out, check something out, come back and say, hey, by the way, and this is what he does here, takes fire, moves right back, goes, hey, up there on your left or on your right, you turn that corner, fire directly into that building. There's German soldiers in that building. They do that, prompts a surrender of 20 German soldiers. Zussman continues ahead even more. At this point, he's just about drawing fire. He's far enough out that he's drawing fire. His tanks can see it. He's directing their engagement with their main gun and their machine guns, fires again into a building, holding German soldiers, kills eight, and another 20 walk out to surrender. Now, the fight is kind of starting to near its close. It's not a small town or it's not a big town. It's a small town. So they're, they're relatively quickly moving through this village, especially after Zussman has been hammering the main German strong points. 
And before the tank makes it all the way through the town, Zussman disappears behind some of the last buildings. And his men can hear a, you know, one-man firefight. They can hear Zussman firing his rifle. And it goes silent. And shortly thereafter, he turns the corner, bringing back 30 German prisoners. 30 by himself. By the end of this fight, and the way that it's phrased um, in his citation here, is Zussman was directly responsible for... His leadership was responsible for an operation that killed 18 enemy soldiers and captured 92. And quite a few of those 92 were marched back to, you know, the American positions by second Lieutenant Zussman himself. For his actions that day on September 12, 1944 in Eastern France, second Lieutenant Raymond Zussman would be recommended for the Medal of Honor. Now, often... We, we hear these stories and it's easy to think that he did his job. Now step back, take a breather. But we forget, I forget, that September 12, 1944 was just another day for Lieutenant Zussman. He had to get back after it the next day. It might have been incredibly heroic. It might have been a crazy story that, 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 he, that he lived through, that he experienced, that he led. But he still had to wake up in the morning and continue to fight. That war, the war wasn't over. And he would continue to fight for nine more days until September 21st, 1944, when 2nd Lieutenant Raymond Zussman was hit and killed by a German mortar. I mentioned that he was submitted for an award. That eventually would go through, and Zussman would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.